So my name's Chris Kettle. I'm a Brit in origin. I'm a tropical ecologist and conservation geneticist who applies molecular ecological approaches to understand plant reproductive ecology. I started my career rather unusually from an applied practical forestry perspective. I worked as a forester and a tree surgeon when I was much younger. And then I went on to study ecology at the University of Edinburgh and then did a PhD at the University of Edinburgh and a postdoc at Aberdeen and eventually a year after into my postdoc I moved to Switzerland and I've been now in ETH Zurich for the last 10 years where I'm a group leader in applied molecular ecology and so I lead research within the Department of Environmental System Science on um, understanding the effects of human change to landscapes particularly forest fragmentation on tree reproductive biology. My name is Sasha Ismail and I um, did my PhD here at ETH Zurich together with Chris Kettle. After my PhD, I went to Berlin to the Botanical Gardens for a postdoc position. And then I went on to for a postdoctoral position at the University of Aberdeen, where I still hold an honorary postdoc fellow. And at the same time, I now start to work at the Zurich Basel Plant Science Center to work on some public engagement with plant sciences. Yeah, and I really focus in my research on conservation, genetic conservation and ecology of rare species is my main interest. In our paper, we estimate effective seed dispersal in Dysoxylum malabaricum. The common name is Indian white cedar. And this species is dispersed by the Malabar grey hornbill, a rather small hornbill species. And we estimated this effective seed dispersal across a huge landscape of 216 square kilometers. There are similar studies like that, but normally they worked at the scale of hundreds of uh, hectares. But we covered 260,000 hectares. And the clue is that although we worked in nuclear markers and although we had no uh, maternal tissue, we could still narrow down the minimum and maximum estimates of seed dispersal to show that there's hardly any seed dispersal across the forest fragments we were investigating. That means that even if the main dispersal is still present, seed dispersal can be very limited in heavy altered um, landscapes. And that means when there is ongoing timber extractions, the uh, tree species will not recolonize spontaneously. I think one of the important points to consider in this paper is that actually it's dealing with a rather cryptic process. So studying seed dispersal may seem trivial in reality. It's not at all. It's actually very difficult to track the movement of seeds over large distances. If you think about the different vectors that are involved, whether it be wind or animal dispersal agents, these processes are very hard to observe. You can't follow seeds with your binoculars. You can't follow seeds with radio tracking devices. And what this paper shows very effectively is there are very effective molecular methods that can be applied even in very large spatial scales to get a, a very clear and uh, ecologically relevant understanding of the patterns of seed dispersal in real landscapes which have been modified by man. And I think the value of this paper is that it um, really demonstrates not only that the methods are, uh, are very feasible, but actually um, it discovers a different perspective than we anticipated. We were expecting seed dispersal to actually be rather long distance by these very mobile bird species. And what we find is that despite the mobility of the dispersal vectors, seed dispersal is very limited. The most exciting thing is actually the the scale we covered. And the most exciting result is 
that we really find very limited seed dispersal despite the dispersal is still very abundant and highly mobile and known to fly over open areas and the species is very robust to habitat disturbance I've even seen it in Mysore, which is a two or three, which is a several million city. It is a very robust species, but still, it doesn't it doesn't disperse in our case the seed really effectively. Yeah, so um, I think one of the most exciting things about the results from this paper is it changes our way of thinking about how trees are likely to respond to fragmentation and the potential to recover when they've been excavated from. A forest patch and I think this has real importance for the way we manage these landscapes and the implications in terms of restoration or the recovery of biodiversity particular tree species um, within these landscapes and so for me really the most exciting thing is it might change the way people view how they manage and restore tropical forest landscapes where tree species have been removed particularly in the context of the molecular work. This paper, in, coupled with its sister paper, which was a paper published a couple of years ago on the pollen dispersal, really shows how we can manage the forest genetic resources in a species like this to enhance its restoration. The most challenging aspect of the study was to get a full inventory of adult trees over a landscape scale. I want to talk a bit about how we did this inventory. And we started to record trees in sacred grove forests where we knew that the tree species occurs in a rather small area. And we knew that it occurs from botanical surveys, from master thesis and PhD thesis which were conducted in this area. The forests are quite easy to survey. Most of them are less than two hectares. So you take the boundary and then you and then you search in stripes the whole area, which was not always fun because some forests are quite degraded, a lot of acacia, creepers and things like that. And then, but what helped tremendously is that especially elder people above 40, I would estimate, they knew the species because the species is culturally very important and it has a very high timber value. When we went to uh, Sacred Grove, we tried to find the temple committee members, which are in charge for the management of these small forest patches to get actually um, permission to access informal permission to access these forests and then we also told them what we are doing and they um, often said yeah but the species does no more occur here or the species uh, or they knew exactly where some individual trees were standing which was quite helpful but still we always checked and then we start noticing okay in most sacred groves we still find one or two trees at least and then we had the inventory from the 80s of all sacred groves. Some sacred groves are already gone. And then we started searching each and every sacred grove. Between the sacred groves, we have these coffee plantations with native shading. And there we were lucky that we had two different inventories of shade trees by a huge project by INRA and by the French Institute of Pondicherry. And they ID'd uh, more than 10,000 trees. They had only three individuals of our tree species in their database. So we knew that the species is really rare. Despite that, we, did, we made random transects and we searched around the sacred groves and we asked farmers. In the end, we had a quite a good feeling that we had a good coverage. But what also helped is that the species is very distinct. So the leaf litter turns first yellow before it becomes brown. And when you walk in the forest, you see the litter, you know, okay, there must be a tree around. And on top of that, it has a very distinct bark. So with the binoculars in the forest, you can check the, the trunks and then you see, oh, bright bark covered with lentils. This might be our target species. And because we, over the period of 14 months of field work, 
every work we did, we constantly searched the trees. We had a very good search image and that helped over the whole period to really be sure. And you notice when you when you search such a rare species, at, at least at that landscape scale, it's really rare with 235 trees. The time unit for an additional tree gets longer and longer and longer until you find no more trees despite you are still searching. And then you know you are very close to the full inventory. But really sure we were only when we had really good assignment rates in the paternity analysis of the, when we investigated pollen dispersal. Then we knew, okay, we can consider this a full inventory of reproductive adults trees. There's some really interesting work that we would like to follow up on this, with, particularly looking at the genetic resources that apply to restoration in the tree communities in this area. And this is work that's not ongoing, but we're looking to develop research projects on particularly understanding what are the consequences of fragmentation for the genetic diversity and other important timber groups in this region for forest restoration. We are working on other tree species in other tropical regions as well, looking at similar questions. So I have a project in the moment looking at the Brazil nuts in trees in Peru. And here we're integrating molecular work, looking at how uh, fragmentation and logging is likely to impact on pollen and seed dispersal in this species, and particularly how genetic diversity in the trees is related to the actual uh, production and supply chain of these important non-timber forest products to the consumer industry in Europe as well. So I think linking this kind of um, reproductive ecology into really important groups of either timber or food producing species is fundamental sort of sustainable development of these kind of tropical forest landscapes. And that's one area where we're putting a lot of our resources into at the moment. So what I personally plan to do next is I'm actually searching a research position where I can combine my organizational talent um, with my passion to do plant conservation relevant research, ideally applying my molecular background. And at the moment, I still have an ongoing project on extremely rare tree species, tree endemics of Sabah, where we genotype all the remaining individuals. So again, exhaustive inventory of trees and exhaustive genotyping of adult trees. And I'm looking forward to analyze this data, which should come sometimes this year. Who would I describe as a role model for me? I think throughout my life, I've been really inspired by the natural world and forests, particularly trees. I guess as a child, I was, as my own son is now, highly inspired by David Attenborough <laughs> and natural history. I don't think I have any real role models in terms of people in science who I aspire to. I think, I, I think I've been driven by a real love of the natural world and forest and trees particularly, which is probably something that was inspired in early life, enjoying being outside but definitely developed by being able to watch David Attenborough's wildlife programs. Yeah, me too. I also have no, I cannot think of any role models I want to imitate or want to aspire to. But I think it is people who inspired me in my career is certainly one of the cults of the papers, Uma Shankar. He is a very sharp thinker, has a very broad view on ecological concepts and processes. And he really promotes people who are in his group and young researchers. And I think he is very honest on how he works. And I think I could describe him somehow as a role model, yes. 
the favorite thing about my job is I don't think there are very many jobs in the world where you can have so much freedom to follow what you really find interesting and to actually explore your, the freedom of using your mind to explore questions about the things you're passionate about. So I'm passionate about forests and about trees, and I find fascinating understanding the reproductive ecology of these organisms and being able to link that with actually doing something you think is really contributing to a more sustainable world is really a bit of a privilege. Getting paid to do it makes it a, a big plus. Seeing younger scientists struggling to publish is probably the, one of the most frustrating aspects of my job and actually seeing how that has changed over the last 10 to 15 years as well. I think if you want a career in academia a publishing science then you need to have incredibly thick skin and a resistance to the trauma of many rejections from perfectly good papers <laughs> so I think that would be the least favorite part of my job is having to see young scientists struggling with the frustration of trying to publish their first really good science. My favorite thing about doing research is that I can really think about fundamental ecological processes in nature and being passionate about nature makes it just amazing. But I also think it's a unique combination of lab work, field work, and computer work, which makes it just a very different um, task than most other jobs. That's really what I like about it. And also meeting a lot of interesting people, actually. There are so many interesting, passionate people in research that makes it itself already very interesting. A problem in science is that hardly any positions are with long-term perspectives. So it's tough to make long-term experiments, but also the focus of the academic system to become a professor is just too much because it's clear 99% of the PhD students will never get the professorship. So we need other long-term positions as scientists. I'm really sure about that. I actually consider myself still an early career scientist. So to a PhD student, I would give the advice to stay only in research if it's really your passion. It's always difficult to, to provide advice for early career scientists because that in itself is a, a difficult concept to describe what an early career scientist is. There may be people who come to science late in life or people who, um, who are very early in their years and, and already quite advanced in their scientific career. But I think I would definitely follow um, Sasha's view that if you, in ecological or in plant sciences particularly, having a passion for your topic is the fundamental thing you need to have to pursue a career in, in plant sciences. Um, following a career academically in plant science is not necessarily the same thing as following a career in plant science itself. And I think there's a diversity of opportunities in the plant sciences that we can now pursue as, uh, as careers. And I'd say if you are following an academic pathway and that's what you aspire to, then I would say start writing papers early in your career because that's what's going to provide the foundation for your academic career. So the sooner you start publishing in your um, career, the better for you. But be really sure that you want an academic career. If you're not sure, try to be really creative in the thinking of exploring the alternative pathways for your um, career in plant sciences. If I'm not doing research, I play the Diablo. The Diablo is uh, somehow related to juggling, although it's not juggling itself. It is uh, a tool for shows related a bit to the spinning tops. And I stopped doing public shows for money, but it's still enough to do some entertainment at, at a small party or at an institute event. I can entertain people and I like that. I should add, Sasha is very good at Diablo and he's a very good entertainer with it. So, um, 
seeing as I'm maybe slightly more senior academic position than Sasha, my free time is much less. <laughs> um, uh, and I have, a, um, as Sasha does, I have a family as well. So I would say when I'm not at a desk in the field, um, I'm rarely in the lab these days. And I'm with my family as a priority. And I'd say that's where my passion is with my family. Fortunately, I have two children who both love trees and forests. So when we're not walking in the forest or climbing trees, we're doing something related to that. Or if it's sitting watching David Attenborough documentaries on a Friday evening with a family, that's always a nice activity. What we certainly share is that our fascination for trees and nature had the basis in our early childhood. I think that's so important to get in touch in early life if you want to have a deep understanding about nature and processes in nature. Not only is it great to be able to explore all these different topics in plant science, but actually as a PhD supervisor, you develop really good relationships with your students as well, which is often leads to good friendships and you have a lot of fun working together. I mean, I was, I think Sasha was my second PhD student some years ago now, but it was really a privilege to be able to develop the project together and, and spend time together in India developing that project and there's not many jobs where you can work in a team of people both people in Switzerland and in, in India and, and develop really nice working relationships together which makes for a really pleasurable working life.